This morning's reading is Hosea 6, verses 1 to 4. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lauren. Morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I don't know if you set any resolutions. I didn't, unfortunately. So if you don't set them, you can't fail at them, can you? That's my new life principle. Let's, um, let's pause for a minute and let's pray. We're going to pray particularly into some of the things that um, Helen was sharing with us. So let's be um, still together just for a moment. Jesus, we thank you for the story of this church community that Helen was sharing with us this morning. We thank you um, that those stories aren't written in books, but they're carried in hearts. That it's part of our lives. That it's shaped us and changed us and transformed us. And Jesus, we thank you that the story that you tell has no beginning and it has no end. That it's not carried by one person or a couple of people but it's held by a whole family and so Jesus we pray that you would help us to caught up in your great story and that as we come uh, to hear your words this morning we would be shaped and transformed by it too in your name we pray amen nice one this morning we are um, we're going to be thinking a bit about Hosea full disclaimer if I'd, um, if I'd have twigged we were going to have kids in the room this morning, this is not the passage nor the sermon I would have chosen to deliver, but we'll all be fine about that as we go along. I'm going to try and keep it relatively short um, this morning as well, but I can make no firm promises um, for any of you, so apologies for that. Um, this morning is a one-off sermon. We're going to think about the book of Hosea because I think across the whole sweep and the story of this book is something that carries meaning and life for us as a church community heading into the next 12 months. Next week, we're going to start a sermon series looking at the miracles of Jesus. We're going to look at all the different kinds of miracles that he did, and that's going to take us up uh, to the start of Lent. But this morning, it is um, a one-hit wonder looking at Hosea, and we're going to land uh, in the verses that we heard read by Laura this morning. I, um, I don't know how you celebrated your New Year's Eve. I hope you spent it with people that you love. I spent mine partly with Dave from Crime Scene Investigators because we got broken into and we came back to our house on New Year's Eve and someone had crowbarred in the front door and you could, um, you could see where they'd been through the trail of debris they'd left through the house. They'd been in my office. They'd been in um, one of the kids' 
bedrooms, been in an office, they've been in our bedroom, they'd rifled through, uh, they stole your hoverboard, they did, that wasn't very nice of them. They stole a tenner off um, our other kids, May, um, and you could tell that they'd, they'd gone through Alice's wardrobe, but they'd left mine completely fine. And I was trying not to be offended by that as I went through the house, but I really thought, you know, if you're going to do Alice's wardrobe, you could have done mine as well, never mind. Um, and on their way out, they nicked two other things. Um, they swiped our car keys. So they, we've got a little black runaround Kia Picanto. They nicked that. The only thing that brought me any solace is knowing how bad that car is. There's, um, there's a little oil light on the dash that flashes for the first 10 minutes while you're driving, and the car kind of shakes as you put your foot to the floor. And I thought, I wonder if they learned yet that you've just got to press on. You've just got to keep on going. The car is it. Um, and they also knit, because of course they did, the CCTV box. If Liverpool Diocese will put the CCTV box right by the front door, then people, as they, nick, as they nick our house, will nick the CCTV box, won't they? I mean, that is literally... If you could think of a bad place to put your CCTV, you'd put it by the front door, wouldn't you? You'd probably put a little sign on it saying CCTV, but there's, there's a monitor, so you, you know exactly what you're nicking, don't you? But um, someone went through all of our house, nicked, our, nicked some of our stuff, and um, I don't know if you've ever been broken into... But when you come back and you find that you have like a sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, don't you? And you think, oh, rats, That's, that wasn't meant to happen, was it? And I, I pulled up onto our drive and I'd, I'd clocked that our black car wasn't there. But you think irrational thoughts, don't you, in those moments? And I thought, why on earth have I parked it somewhere not on the drive? Why have I parked it? I thought I'd parked it around the front of church. And then when we opened the front door and I saw this used to be gone, I thought, oh, man, someone has been through our house makes you feel sick, doesn't it, when something like that happens, when you get broken into, maybe when you get bad news from a doctor, when uh, something happens to a friend, when we hear that people have passed away that we love and we care for, you get that kind of sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach, don't you? And you think, oh, man, I didn't need that. I didn't need that. That wasn't helpful. That wasn't good. And then we reel from it, don't we? We have to recover and come to terms with those things. You see, we don't need much persuading, particularly at the moment, I think, as a church, that we live in a broken and a disordered world, right? That the way that things are isn't the way they're meant to be. And in that disordered and broken world, we also bring our own brokenness, don't we? And our own junk and our own mistakes. Um, you might have said something to someone over Christmas that you squarely regret now. Um, you might be able to think back to times and moments where you think, do you know what? I wish I hadn't done that or behaved in that way. The world is broken and disordered. And it's into that world and into our lives this morning that the prophet Hosea speaks. Because the message through Hosea is consistent all of the way through. Which is that no matter how far away you try and run from God, no matter how messed up or complicated or riddled with grief your life is right now, that God does not give up. That he pursues you relentlessly because he knows you and he loves you and he cares for you. And even when you give up on him, he does not give up on you. I don't know what the state of your life is this morning. I don't know whether uh, you're grieving, whether uh, there are things going on that you're not happy about in your world, whether you've had a doctor's appointment and it's not gone well for you, whether life for you is well ordered and everything feels fine. Whatever our situation is, God this morning pursues us and he reminds us and he shows us that he loves for us. 
Hosea is found in the Old Testament, and he's one of the minor prophets. There are 12 of them, and they're minor, not because um, they're less important, but just because they're short. Hosea doesn't waste any time. He gets it all done in 14 short chapters. Hosea is a prophetic book, and that means it's, um, it's a combination of prophetic poetry and prophetic speech and also prophetic action. That means that people do something to show us and demonstrate to us how God feels about us in the here and now. So as a church, we do lots of prophetic action. The network does lots of prophetic action. When we open our food bank, that's a prophetic act because we're saying in this place, in this parish, we don't think anyone should be hungry and so we feed people. When we run Celebrate Recovery, that's a prophetic act as we say that people should be free and live free and we want to be a part of God's kingdom coming in this place. It's a prophetic action. And at the center of the book of Hosea is a prophetic act because God asks Hosea to marry someone. That of itself wouldn't have been that unusual, but the person he's asked to marry is unusual. God asks Hosea to marry a sex worker. And so he marries a woman called Gomer. Now, marriage back in those days isn't like marriage today. Today, we marry for love, hopefully, don't we, rather than for money. Uh, We meet someone and we fall in love with them or you find them online and you message them. And over time, this kind of romantic attraction builds up and you decide that's the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Well, back in Hosea's day, people married for two reasons. They married for social status or to bring peace between warring tribes. If we were at war and I married someone from your tribe, we would now live in peace and at harmony with each other because we became a family. People married for social status. If you can marry up the social ladder, a bit like Pride and Prejudice, if you can marry up the social ladder, then you improve your own social status. Uh, People were concerned with honor and shame for their family name. And if you can marry the right kind of person, then you bring honor to your family. But... Marrying Gomer is the worst possible decision that Hosea could make. It's the worst possible decision. It brings shame and disgrace on his family. His uh, parents, if they were still alive, or the rest of his family, would have put loads of pressure on him to say, don't, whatever you do, don't do this. Don't marry Gomer, because she's going to bring shame and disgrace, not just on you, Hosea, but on our whole family. And that's going to make our lives almost unbearable. We'll be ostracized and rejected from our social circles. It will have huge impacts across the whole of our lives. But Hosea knows that God has spoken, and so he decides that he's going to do it. And so he marries Gomer. Even though all of his friends are saying, she'll cheat on you, she'll commit adultery, he does it anyway. And it starts well. They have three children. The first is a boy, and they call him Jezreel which means judgment is coming. Can you imagine naming your kid that? Judgment is coming. (laughs) They wouldn't love it if you named him Jezreel. The second one, they called a name which means no mercy. And the third, they they gave him a name which means not my people. They are three brutal names, aren't they? I mean, kids have weird names nowadays, but if you named one of your children No Mercy and the other Not My People, I think you would get a knock on your door from someone saying, you can't really do that. God is making, God is speaking through the names of those children to the people of Israel, and he's declaring judgment, isn't he? I'm going to show them no mercy. They are not my people. There is judgment coming. 
God is speaking through these children's names to let Israel know that it's time to wake up. Because you can't keep on stumbling and staggering on. Sometimes you've just got to wake up. You just need to hear the voice and the word of God that says it's your time to take responsibility for your own relationship with me and you need to wake up. Hosea's story then gets a bit worse as um, his wife Gomer starts to commit adultery. There's an interesting passage where every day she stays with Hosea and it looks like she's being faithful. But then when nighttime comes, she leaves and she goes back to work. But Hosea is not soft. He knows where she's going and he knows what she's doing. So when she comes back, he's left a gift out for her and a nice gift. One time he leaves her wheat and barley. Another time he leaves the silver and perfume. You see, Hosea, even though he knows what she's doing, he's still trying to woo her back. He still loves her. He's still saying that even though you're doing this thing that I can't stand, that I can't abide, that brings shame and disgrace on me and my family, I still want you to be with me. And it doesn't work. She keeps on going out. And so he takes a next step and he grows thorns over the path that she uses to leave. He's trying to make leaving more difficult. He says, if I can't woo you to get you to stay, I'll make leaving more difficult. So he grows the thorns over the path and she keeps on leaving. She fights her way through the thorns. It's like she's addicted to unfaithfulness, like she's addicted to leaving him but he still never gives up. Hosea keeps on trying. He keeps on trying to bring her back. And the whole story is like a metaphor. It's like an analogy for who God is and for Israel. And Hosea explains it later on. In the story, Hosea is playing the part of God. He's playing the part of the divine, loving creator who always stays. He never leaves. He's steady. He's faithful. Even though he knows that she's cheating on him, he stays trusting that one day she'll come back and she'll come to her senses. Gomer plays the part of Israel, always leaving, always unfaithful, often pretending like they're doing the right thing, but leaving, cheating on him committing adultery, and that brings shame and disgrace in him. Hosea has two options in the story. Uh, He could either have her stoned to death, or he could have her stripped naked and get her to walk around the streets. Whatever he does, he has to divorce her, because she's brought shame on his family, and he has to do something that brings back control to him and shows that he's the man, and he's in charge, and no one gets to treat him like that, and he doesn't do any of those things. He doesn't do any of those things. Instead, every time he welcomes her back. It's not a model for marriage. It's not that the Bible is telling us that's what we should always do, but, but it's a story and an analogy and a metaphor for how our relationship with God works. We continually stray. We continually try to leave. We continually try to abandon him, but he remains faithful and true, and he welcomes us home each and every time. Like a father, who's lost a son, like a woman who's lost a coin and she turns the whole house around trying to find it, like a faithful lover waiting for someone who repeatedly cheats on them. It's complicated, that story, isn't it? Because in it, the man is God and divine 
and the woman is sinful and she strays. You'll find that pattern in lots of different parts of literature often, and it, it doesn't really sit well with us in 2021, does it, on January the 9th or whatever it is. But back in that time and in that period, the, the weight of the story, it doesn't sit with the women, it sits with the men, because the men were responsible for their household and their family. And that means that if God is saying Israel's gone astray, it's up to the men to take responsibility for it and to bring their family back into a right relationship with God. It's up to the men to make that decision. And so they carry the weight and the responsibility, and they are the ones that we're being told are like Gomer. The men are the ones who are being like Gomer, and they're leading their families astray. They take the responsibility. They take the weight. The judgment is against them and against their actions. As we move through Hosea, we go from being concerned with individuals and individuals taking responsibility for their relationship with God to a nation being called and a nation held to account. And Israel are given their voice. Uh, Israel say this, as we heard Laura read earlier. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. By making the metaphor and the story so far all about a husband and a wife, uh, this whole passage, this whole book has been landed in the context of covenant. Uh, a covenant means two people who've made vows and entered into that commitment to each other. Uh, in our kind of modern day world, marriage is a covenant. There's a legal bit where you sign paperwork, all that kind of stuff. But if you get married in a church before God, then you make a covenant in front of him that you're going to uphold and honor those vows. And we're being reminded that we've entered into a covenant with God. It says on the second day, uh, he'll revive us. And on the third day, he'll restore us. Restore means return back to full and complete relationship. Do you remember we were talking in the autumn about the pattern of the third day, where on the third day, that's when new covenant comes. On the third day, Jesus rises from the dead and there's a new covenant. On the third day, Moses ascends the mountain and he's given the Ten Commandments. On the third day, Abraham receives a blessing from God that uh, he'll have his, gener- his descendants will be as multiple as grains of sand and stars in the sky and that all generations will be blessed through him or people everywhere. The new covenant begins on the third day and so the people of God are being called back into covenant with him. And as God calls them back to covenant, he reminds them in this passage that that's an exclusive covenant, that you don't get to have other gods. You don't get to follow other powers or deities, but that he is the one true God. Uh, and we're being told that through this passage. As we get to this, it says, as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water on the earth. In that verse, another God is being dethroned. There's a God called Baal that you might have heard of if you read parts of the Old Testament. Elijah kind of goes to war against Baal and the prophets of Baal. And Baal is a God of the Canaanites. And often when tribes lived close to each other and they married amongst each other, different gods would get kind of fused in and brought into different religions. And so what you kind of end up with is like a hodgepodge of lots of different gods being worshipped by tribes at lots of different times. And that happened in Israel. People would marry in and they would bring their gods with them. And one of the gods that came sometimes was Baal. 
Now, Baal was responsible for the rain and the storms. And um, uh, he was responsible for it, and so that meant that if there wasn't rain or storms, something had happened to Baal. Baal had gone somewhere, and so you would need to offer a sacrifice or do something to persuade Baal to bring the rains. Well, in that land at that time, from May to September, it was always dry. It never rained. And so the people tried to work out, well, why does it never rain between May and September? And they started to tell a story to make sense of it. They started to say, well, every May, Baal must get into a fight with another god called Mut. And Mut is the god of death and barrenness. And um, he must lose, right? Because it's dry from May to September. And so Baal dies, killed by Mut, but his lover keeps on looking for him. And in September, every year, he's found by his lover And they do the thing that lovers do, and it brings Baal back to life. And then it rains all the way through from September to May. And then every May, Baal is killed, and the cycle keeps on going. It's a bit mad, isn't it? Wouldn't wouldn't pass a lot of kind of critical thinking tests, but there we go. Every year, Baal is killed. No one says to Baal, have you considered not getting into a fight every May? Apparently, that's not something we said to Baal, but that's what they do. And they created a cult, a ritual around it, where all of the men every September would uh, become very good friends with some temple prostitutes every September. Follow me. And they, um, I think it was come up with by the men, but the idea was that that would encourage the rain to fall. Uh, They were trying to persuade and manipulate God to do the thing that they so desperately needed. And that's why in this passage, God is saying through Hosea that he is the one that makes the spring rains come. He is the one that makes the winter rains come. In other words, you can't manipulate me. He's not told them, if you do this, then I'll make the winter rains come. Or if you do that, I'll make the spring rains come. But he's dethroning Baal, these other gods, and he's saying, I am the one that's in charge and in control. I am the one that is over everything. Yahweh, God, is, being, God is reminding his people that he is the one true God, that he is the one true faithful God that never leaves, that never runs, that never abandons, but he remains steady and faithful and true. Like the bass line in a piece of music, he stays. In a world that's chaotic and disordered and we don't understand, in a world that sees so much brokenness and upset, we need a God who is one and true and faithful, don't we? Who sits in the middle of it and holds it all together. He holds us together this morning. He's our baseline. He's the one. He carries the story that has no beginning and no end today. He's with us. All the way through Hosea, he keeps on diagnosing the problem. And he says, I know why this keeps on going wrong. I know why you keep on wandering off. And he says, it's because you don't yada me. The word yada is a Hebrew word, and it means no. It's like... It means no, but more than just like an intellectual thing. It's not like you revise for a maths test and now you know algebra. But it's no in a deep, personal way, in the way that two really good friends know each other and you understand each other and there's a shared space that you live and you breathe. And he's saying, you leave me because you don't know me like that. 
Because if you knew me like that, then you wouldn't want to leave. If you knew who I really was, if you knew how good and kind and merciful and generous I was, then you wouldn't want to miss a moment with me. These other gods, they wouldn't be attractive to you. The idea that you would wander off and be unfaithful would be ridiculous because you would know just how good I am. This morning, do you know just how good God is? Do you know just how loving he is? Do you know just how kind and merciful he is to you and to us as a church family and to your own family as well? Because when you know that, when you discover that, you don't want to leave. Unfaithfulness feels meaningless. It feels pointless when you know just how good he is. Getting to know God is one of the most straightforward things that we can do. And it means that we do the things that Helen was talking about this morning and Tim mentioned that anyone, anywhere, pretty much, whoever your next vicar is, I'm sure they'll tell you to do the same thing, which is you really could pray. You can't get to know someone you don't spend time with. If you don't commit yourself to prayer, then don't expect to know God. Don't expect to have a deep, personal, connected relationship with him. If you don't read your Bibles, it's going to be really hard to know God because you won't know the story of God and his people and that story is being extended and told through you and you can do your own bit of the story but if you know and you see what's going on then you can understand more deeply what it is that God's doing in you and if we don't worship together if we don't declare that he's good and sing of his love and his kindness and his grace to us it's really hard to know God see when we have those three things as part of our lives Walking away is a lot less attractive, isn't it? Getting distracted and sidetracked is a lot harder because we have those three things straight in view, right in the middle of who we are. As we come into a new year together, as we continue to live in a world that's unpredictable and unstable and at times unsafe, do you know God? Are you choosing to prioritize that? Are you making that the sense of your lives and the heartbeat of everything that you do. Because if you do those things, it will carry you through those difficult moments. But if we don't, if we neglect them, then time and time and time again, like the people of Israel, we'll continue to wander off. And we get to make a choice. We get to make those decisions. But God is always there waiting for us to return. We're going to... give a moment just to be still and to wait on the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me as we do that? And you might find it helpful to um, close your eyes, put your hands out in front of you as a sign to God that you um, want to meet with him this morning. And we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to move among us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you reveal yourself to us this morning? Because we want to know you today. 
We say that as individuals and we say it as a whole church family. Lord Jesus, we want to know you today. We want to know your power. We want to know your healing. We want to know your hope. We don't just want to um, fill our heads, but we want our hearts to be full, Jesus. Would you come and fill them today? Uh, Jesus, we give you the times when we've wandered off. We give you the times when we've chosen um, to leave you either deliberately or just through taking our eyes off the ball. Jesus, we ask for your forgiveness today for that. And we thank you that you're always ready, always ready to welcome us home. Holy Spirit, would you continue to speak through us today?